OBS Orbit, the podcast for Open vSwitch users and developers. This is episode number 44. This episode is an interview with Leonard Rizik, a senior researcher in the VMware Research Group. Last week, I was pleased to attend a talk by Leonard about his Cocoon 2 system for STN programming, and soon after the talk, I had this opportunity to interview him about the system. On to the interview. Hello, everyone. Today, I'm talking to Leonid Rizik. You're a senior researcher in the uh, VMware Research Group, and you focus on formal methods uh, for uh, operating systems and, and networks. Uh, and uh, before we uh, really jump into uh, what we're going to talk about today, uh, do you want to say a little bit more about yourself? Uh, hi, Ben. Thanks for the introduction. Uh, so I think you summarized it perfectly. Uh, I'm generally interested in uh, using formal methods to make... Uh, all kinds of systems, computer systems better, including operating systems and networks. Today, I think we're going to uh, be talking about something that you're working on called uh, Cocoon 2, which is a successor to some previous work you did uh, that was, I guess, just called Cocoon, but I, I understand it's quite different. So uh, what what was the problem that you, you set out uh, to, to solve when uh, uh, you uh, started designing this, this system? What, what were you aiming to, uh, uh, to, to accomplish? Uh, so the problem we are trying to address is that there seems to be an important gap in the current state in network programming. Um, there seems to be this broad consensus that programmable networks are good, and there are lots of applications where, where they are a major enabler, you know, network virtualization being one of them. But uh, there are a bunch of others now, including uh, all, all kinds of software-defined routing, software-defined WANs, uh, and so on. So, so people like programmable networks. And uh, at the low level, uh, there is this, there are a bunch of enabling technologies like uh, OpenFlow. Um, before, hopefully, there will be more of these low-level data plane languages uh, coming out, or the existing ones will will improve. Um, but if you look at the problem of uh, actually programming networks on top of one of those, uh, you'll realize that there is no nice high-level language or library or any kind of uh, practical way uh, to make high-level abstractions available to network programmers. So right now, uh, everybody programs networks in Python or C++. So you end up writing a program that spits out a stream of uh, OpenFlow commands or P4 commands. Um, And that's not an easy kind of programming to do. So if you think about it, in a sense, uh, if, if you're an SDN programmer today, uh, then every application you're writing is really a compiler in the sense that you write a program whose output is another program in OpenFlow or before. Um, and, you know, compiler development is not the easiest thing in the world. Very few people can get it right. Uh, and, you know, giants like VMware and Google can, can pull it off by, you know, putting top people, uh, lots of resources on the projects. So what I'm worried about is how to make uh, network programming available for for. Uh, for many more developers, so th- that's great. Um, and I, I guess when you when you're talking about these uh, um, these systems that are available, you, you mean things like Open Daylight and, and Anas and, and and so on. Right. So, so those um, are SDN controllers, and it is true they do provide some level of abstractions. They usually provide some sort of uh, event-based uh, models. They provide some sort of a nice API on top of OpenFlow. Open 
but I would say those were still uh, pretty low-level abstractions. They give you very little guidance in terms of how you write the application, and they very little in terms. They do very little in terms of um, automating the tedious tasks uh, that are involved in SDN programming. So to give one example, um, any practical SDN program has to work in an incremental way. So you have some sort of configurations that you're trying to uh, install on, on your data plane, uh, but then the user comes in and makes a small change, and you want to convert the small change into a small incremental update to OpenFlow or P4 tables. Uh, and this kind of incremental programming is, is tricky because you have to carefully keep track of the current state and uh, compute the deltas and apply those deltas to your switches. That, that's very tricky and error-prone. And I, I don't think any of the existing solutions do much in terms of helping you automate those tasks. So uh, I, let, let me suggest maybe a, a slight clarification there. I, I, I don't think it's actually that difficult to incrementally update a switch. Um, you just uh, compare what you put there before against what you want there now, and then you send the delta. But isn't the, the really difficult problem uh, making sure that the computation itself is incremental so that you don't have to uh, fully recompute everything uh, before you do that delta? That's a good point. I, I think that both are tricky. I mean, uh, in, in simple cases, it, it's more or less straightforward what you're doing, but uh, you know, as, as your network configuration becomes more complicated, uh, as your network logic becomes more complicated, you know, it's, it's easy to get those things wrong. But having said that, I, compl I completely agree with what you said. So there is a problem of uh, recomputing the state, and you want to do that efficiently. And then there is a problem of recomputing the actual delta to install on the switch. Uh, and one aspect that makes all of this uh, tricky is that all of these updates happen asynchronously. Uh, so, you know, if you look at research papers that talk about uh, incremental updates, they make it look like, uh, you know, an atomic step. A new change arrives, you sort of stop the world, reconfigure the switches, um, uh, and, and, and then you wait for the next change. But in reality, uh, you can have a stream of those changes coming, uh, you know, say every, every few seconds, uh, and you're not going to be necessarily be able to update your switches in lockstep. So there's always going to be this uh, uh, gap between the realized state installed on the switches and the desired state that the user requested. And so asynchronously uh, bringing the switches up to speed uh, with the desired configuration is actually pretty tricky. I mean, I'm sure you know that much better than I do because <laughs> you, you built more than one of those systems. So, uh, so far we've been contrasting mostly against the, um, the, the commercial uh, the, uh, platforms and, and presumably against the, the other ones as well that are, are more open source, like, like Ryu and Fawcett and so on. Uh, but there's also a significant number of these uh, academic languages. Like I've, I've seen presentations and papers from uh, Robert Soleil and Jennifer Rexford and, and numerous uh, other people. And, and these academic languages seem a little closer to uh, uh, what you're uh, saying that, that, we, uh, that we really need. So what's the, uh, what's the difference between Cocoon and the, the other academic network programming languages? Right. So Cocoon does build heavily on a lot of this work. Uh, in fact, there's been, you know, I guess about a decade of work on uh, high-level SDN programming languages now, uh, and uh, we are building in a lot of these ideas. Um, so I, I guess the main innovation in Cocoon is that um, it recognizes the fact that network programming has this, this interesting duality, uh, or these two facets, if you, if you will. Um, on the one hand, you can often think about network programming as an automaton, building an automaton. And that's, for example, the view that systems like Netcat take. 
uh, where they recognize the fact that the data plane is effectively a finite state machine that uh, manipulates uh, uh, manipulates network packets. Uh, the orthogonal view is that uh, a network can often be seen as a relational database, and that's particularly appropriate when you talk about network configuration, which is usually represented as a bunch of uh, as a bunch of relational tables and, and views computed based on this table. And so most of the and, and that's for example the view taken in systems like Flowlog or or uh, Nlog uh, that was used in, in in the first version of NSX. So I think that all of the previous languages basically used one of these two uh, abstractions. They either said that the network is a, uh, an automaton or that the network is, uh, is a database. Uh, but I really think that it's a bit of both. And so Cocoon uh, incorporates both these paradigms. It supports a uh, relational model with a data log engine uh, for reasoning about configuration. And it supports an imperative language with um, state machine semantics for describing the data plane. And then the key feature is uh, the link between the two, where you can make uh, queries to the control plane database uh, from the data plane program. So this makes perfect sense to me because I've been involved in this uh, um, in directly and indirectly uh, for some time. But I'm, I'm not sure it's obvious to everyone uh, how a network is is either of these or or, or both. So, um, how how is a network re- related to a, a relational database? Right. So, let let's take an example. Let's talk, for example, about network virtualization. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now, before you go and start programming your switches, you have to describe your uh, your your domain. So you're going to say things like. Uh, you know, I have a physical network which consists of uh, a bunch of hypervisors, a bunch of VMs, hypervisors have ports, um, and all of these abstractions can be uh, naturally described as, as, as tables. There's a table of switches, there's a, t- a table of hypervisors, a table of um, uh, VMs, and so on. Um, and then you say, I'm going to build a virtual topology on top of this, and my virtual topology also has a bunch of relations like logical switches, logical ports, and so on. Um, uh, there might also be some uh, dynamic computations involved, uh, such as, for example, given a, a virtual topology, you might uh, use some uh, uh, relational queries to compute shortest paths between uh, uh, between virtual nodes for routing purposes. Um, and so, all of that fits very, very nicely in the relational model. And you know, whether systems that do this. You know, are built on top of a database, or they just use some kind of in-memory representation. Uh, it really is a database in the implementation at the implementation level. So you essentially have some some input tables that describe the uh, the, the state of of the network, like its topology and so on, and, and then uh, some number of views or queries that uh, that, that realize um, things that are, are useful for uh, for actually uh, operating the network. That's correct. Um, and and so this is uh, as you said that this is uh, similar to the view that uh, some other systems have taken. The one I'm most familiar with is Nlog. Uh, we had a previous OVS Orbit episode that was uh, all about Nlog with uh, Temu Kaponen, um, who was the uh, designer of Nlog. Um, you mentioned Flowlog as well. That that's one I'm not familiar with, but I'll, I'll assume that it has sort of a, a similar view. Um, so then the, the other half of this duality is the, the finite state machine um, uh, view of, of a network. And is that, uh, well, I, I, is that more like the open flow view? Or, or maybe, maybe you should just describe uh, how, uh, how a network is like a finite state machine for the, uh, for, from the philosophy of, of, uh, what you're, of the way you're thinking about it. 
Right. So I, I, I think that um, the researchers who did the NetCat language and the whole uh, frenetic project nailed that view down. They basically said, um, uh, well, let's look at what a switch does to a network packet. You can really think about it as a sequence uh, of transformations, probably with some branching. You know, Maybe the first thing you do is you uh, apply an access control list to a packet to decide if it can be uh, uh, passed down or it needs to be dropped. Uh, then you do NAT processing. Then depending on the kind of a packet it is, uh, it will go through either uh, IP or ARP uh, processing and so on. And then maybe if it's a multicast packet, we're going to fork it and uh, send it to multiple destinations. Uh, so all of this processing can be nicely captured uh, as an automaton. And uh, uh, this representation has a couple of benefits. One of them is uh, it's easier to understand than a pipeline of open flow tables uh, and easier to write. The other one is it's more compositional. You can build this automata out of smaller building blocks by putting them together sequentially or in parallel. Um, and I think that uh, this approach really nails it down because languages like Nlog, um, they take a slightly different approach to the data plane. They say, well, so the network configuration is a database. Uh, but wait a second, the switch itself can be seen as a database because the switch is just a collection of tables. So let's trace this database view all the way into the switch. And let's, uh, 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 let, let's make our uh, dynamic views reach all the way to the uh, open flow switch. And the views we're going to compute in the very end are going to correspond exactly to open flow tables. I hope I'm describing this correctly. I, I think that's accurate. And, 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 and this, is, this does give you re the required functionality, but I think that uh, at the data plane level, it's by far not the most natural way to, to represent things, or not the most intuitive, I should say, way to represent things. From a programmer's you, point of view? You can program the data plane in that way, but I think that's uh, more error-prone than switching to this uh, automata-based view uh, at the data plane level. Okay, so uh, it, it sounds like the automaton-based view seems more natural. So, uh, what, what, why, uh, why not just do that entirely? Uh, why, why combine them? Uh, because in the netcat world, or in general, this automaton world, there is no nice way to reason about configurations and updates to configurations. Because the way you use something language like netcat uh, is you still have to write a program in say Python. Uh, that will look at the network configuration database uh, and spit out a netcat program that can then be installed on the switches. So you're still in this world where you have to write basically a compiler that will uh, generate another program. I see. So, uh, uh, so, so the database approach is uh, more convenient for considering the configuration. The automaton approach is more convenient for actually programming the network. Yeah, that's that's our belief in in, in the Cocoon project, and this lets you. Uh, not not only it gives you the most natural abstractions for each level, um, but it also removes this level of indirection where you have to write a program that generates another program. Instead, you just one write one program in the Cocoon language, which uh, uh, looks a lot like an imperative program in a netcat style language uh, that has um, uh, queries to the configuration database built into it. Uh, the database can be quite complicated and uh, contain a bunch of dynamic views uh, that are updated uh, whenever the basic tables are updated. So you have this nice uh, uh, support for incremental changes to configuration. Um, moreover, this incrementality goes all the way to the data plane. 
so once you've written the Cocoon program, you, you never have to worry about um, incrementally updating OpenFlow table because the runtime does all of that for you. Whenever one of the table changes, it will incrementally compute a delta that will be applied to your uh, OpenFlow table at runtime. So it combines uh, database queries with imperative programming and sort of gives you the, the best of both worlds. That, that's exactly the idea. So what, what does a Cocoon 2 program look like? Well, so you start with defining a database schema very much along the lines that uh, uh, you know, I used to uh, describe the network virtualization example. Um, then once you've captured your, applica your, um, yes, your application domain uh, using a combination of tables and data log queries, uh, you move into programming the data plane. Um, so data plane programs are parameterized. You don't have to program every single port of every single switch. Instead, instead what you say uh, is, well, I have families of switches that do similar things in my network. Maybe in case of network virtualization, there's a, uh, there's a regular switch and there's a, an edge switch that connects to the, to, the physical, to the physical network. And for those two types of switches, I'm going to, I'm going to write a parameterized program uh, that will have queries to the configuration database embedded in it. Um, this program, it, 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 it's a very intuitive uh, imperative language, which borrows some things from Netcode, but some things from standard languages like C. Um, and that's basically it. Uh, right. So in the presentation you gave yesterday, you, sh you showed an example of a simple network virtualization system. And it, it looked like a, a set of SQL definitions for tables at the top, um, followed by um, some uh, definitions for, for views or, or for queries uh, that, that generated other tables based on it. And then there were a, a few um, imperative functions that, that actually uh, took advantage of the views that you'd created. What, what I found was interesting was you, you showed how you could use, you, you could sort of decide at, at what point you wanted to switch from a database to imperative. You, you showed two different versions of the same program, uh, one that uh, used more extensive database queries and one that used uh, um, more extensive uh, imperative definitions. That's correct. It, it, it does turn out that uh, uh, this line between the um, declarative database world and the, and the imperative uh, data plane world is is uh, a bit blurry. Uh, you can uh, shift some computation between the data plane, where you can you know, basically implement your computation via a sequence of uh, OpenFlow tables, uh, or you can do it in the control plane and uh, pre-compute the result of that query in advance, which uh, I guess is usually the preferred way. So the more computation you can do offline in the control plane, I guess uh, uh, the smaller your tables in the data plane will end up being smaller and fewer. Uh, so uh, would, would both of those programs potentially produce the same flows of eventually on, on the switches? Uh, right now, they will not. Uh, so the, uh, the version of the program that uh, pre-computes uh, some of the things uh, in the control plane will end up having fewer tables because those tables, they actually simulate the same computation within the data plane. And is there uh, um, an, an implication for uh, one representation being more efficient than the other at the control plane layer or at the data plane layer? Right, so it's, it's um, not completely clear cut. So like I said, uh, the more computation you do in the control plane, the uh, fewer tables you'll need. Uh, 
But because these computations, they often involve uh, joins between multiple tables, you may end up with bigger, uh, with bigger open flow tables, uh, you know, potentially exponentially bigger in the number of relations invo involved in the query. Um, the nice thing about Cocoon is, is you're in control. Uh, it gives you an opportunity to design what you believe will work best uh, in real applications. Uh, potentially, this kind of optimization could also be automated and even done on the fly, but uh, we haven't explored it yet. So are, is there a similar implication for um, how, how incremental it is, that if you have a, a small change to your configuration, how, how much computation will be needed and, and how big the change the switches uh, would be? Um, right, so this is the heart of uh, Cocoon, Cocoon's runtime, is this incremental data, data log engine that we use to recompute, uh, to recompute relations, and in the end of the day to recompute uh, open flow tables. Um, so it is true that uh, you can write very complex queries, which are going to be extremely expensive to maintain at runtime. Um, in our experience so far, most of the things you want to express in networking are not like that. Uh, most queries, and I think this matches your experience that uh, you were discussing yesterday, is that most queries are actually relatively simple and lightweight. In particular, I think you mentioned that uh, data log queries with negations don't come up very often. That's right. My uh, my recollection is that uh, Temu told us that they uh, that that for NVP they implemented a, a fairly advanced uh, N-log or a data log uh, implementation, and and then after a while they realized that they didn't actually need some of the features, so they <clears throat> so they were able to simplify it at that right. point. Right. So the da data log engine we use at the moment is actually quite general. We build on Frank McSherry's differential data flow framework, which supports negations and aggregate queries and all sorts of uh, uh, sophisticated things. Uh, we haven't had a need for many of them yet. I think you mentioned that the um, data log engine and therefore your software is is written in Rust, which is a um, sort of an up and coming uh, a language for uh, that, that's known for its uh, its safety and and so on. What, what have your experiences been uh, using Rust and, and using the the engine written in it? Right. So, uh, a slight correction. So, Cocoon is actually written in Haskell. Uh, the data log engine is indeed in Rust. But yes, yeah, so, so, so for the Rust part and uh, for my previous experience with Rust, it's actually very interesting. It's one of those cases where fighting with the compiler can be frustrating. <laughs> uh, once you're through, it gives you the satisfying feeling that you... you it, it gives you a degree of confidence that the, you go to try it. Uh, the program is free of, of whole families of really unpleasant bugs, including concurrency bugs, types, and memory safety. Um, I imagine that as the Rust compiler toolchain improves, uh, there will be less of the struggle and more of the more of the benefits. Uh, I mean, it's but it's also a very high performance language. Like you, you, you don't get this kind of combination of um, performance and safety from any other language I know of. Uh, right. I, I suppose that Haskell gives you some of the same benefits, but maybe not the performance? That's right. Uh, yeah, Haskell is a... Well, it, de it depends on how you code in it, but it can be pretty expensive because of lazy evaluation and garbage collection and all the usual things you find in a high-level language. But I think it's a nice separation. So if we basically write the performance-critical part of the system in Rust, uh, but the rest of it we write uh, in this nice high-level functional language. And do they interface to each other in a reasonable way? 
Um, so the way we do it now is we just uh, communicate through a socket. Ah, so oh, I guess okay. the answer is no. So, um, oh. Both languages support some form of FFI. I'm not sure how easy it is to bridge them. I see. So uh, let's see. Um, what what's the next step uh, for uh, for the the project? I, I assume uh, that you're uh, working on a, a research paper. Uh, so we are hoping to submit a SIGCOM in a couple of months, um, but um, at a higher level. So, so, so my ambition in this project was really to build a practical language that people would be able to use. Uh, and so I'm hoping to continue pushing it in that direction because this is exactly where uh, previous academic um, academic projects haven't been particularly successful, in my opinion. Uh, and the first thing we're going to do is build a bunch of um, uh, interesting case studies in this language, language ourselves, uh, uh, including uh, trying to see if we can write parts of the OVN, uh, Virtual Network um, a controller in in Cocoon and get the advantages of uh, you know declarative specification, um, incremental computation, and so on. Um, and we are of course looking for people who would be interested in uh, uh, you know test driving the language and their their applications. Great. Uh, so if if people are interested, uh, how how should they get in, in touch with you? Uh, via email, I guess is the best. Uh, so it's elrijek at uh, vmware.com. Uh, the project is also open source on GitHub. Oh, that, um, that's great. I'll be sure to in- include a link to, uh, uh, to to that. Thank you. How do you get the the, the software up and running? Uh, what what is it? A, a library? Is it a, a, a program? How? Uh, it's a program. So you do need uh, Haskell and Rust tool chains, uh, as well as. Um, OVS, because this is currently the backend that we support. Is there anything uh, interesting that I've, I've I've missed asking about? Um, I always like to give people a chance to, to talk about other things that uh, I, I just forgot about. Right. I feel that we've covered a lot of the ground. Uh, I hope uh, this will convince some people to have a look at uh, Cocoon 2. All right. Oh, actually, one more question. So uh, we've talked about uh, network virtualization. That, that's obviously a place where it's uh, good to have things that are incremental, and OVN in particular needs that and, and doesn't have anything for that. Um, but w- what other areas are, are you thinking of as, as ripe for uh, this, this kind of uh, application? Right. So there are a few that we're looking at. Uh, so one that I'm interested in exploring is um, uh, software-defined uh, uh, data center topologies. Uh, things like uh, uh, programmable factories, uh, uh, clothes in general, uh, software-defined wide area networks. Um, so SD SD WAN is a, a pretty big area for for business. Um, there, there's a, a lot of uh, companies who work in that area. Um, are are, are SAP software-defined networks in in data centers? Are, are those a uh, um, are those widely used? I, I haven't heard too much about that. Uh, well, I have the impression that, uh, in particular, Google is pushing uh, in that direction. Mm. Um, so software-defined doesn't necessarily mean, you know, the classical SDN architecture with a single centralized controller in the middle managing everything. It can be more decentralized, but it basically comes down to uh, some form of programmable network hardware uh, managed by one or more uh, controllers. Um, and I feel that... Uh, of course, this is not something that you know every enterprise network would be doing anytime soon. But uh, the bigger players like uh, 
uh, Google and Facebook, uh, telecom companies, uh, they seem to be moving in that direction. Well, that would be uh, pretty exciting if you could uh, uh, get them interested in, in any of this, even as a, a sort of a proof of concept. Thank you. Well, I think we've uh, uh, covered everything, and I'll, I'll be sure to in- include links to the software and uh, and uh, how to how to contact you. Uh, thank you very much. I think this will be a good episode. Thank you so much, buddy. OVS Orbit is edited and produced by Ben Pfaff using Audacity audio editing software and released under the Creative Commons unported 3.0 license. The intro and bumper music in this episode is excerpted from Electro Deluxe by My Free Mickey and the outro from Girls Like You by Stefan Kartenberg, both under the Creative Commons attribution unported 3.0 license. For more episodes of OVS Orbit, visit ovsorbit.org or for more information about OpenVSwitch, visit openvswitch.org.